This is one of the few topics where people probably have some kind of experience related to the criminal justice system. They either know someone who went through it, um, they know someone who's involved in it. For me, I always like those topics for, so kids can kind of connect to them and then they get a little bit more invested. Hey, debaters, welcome to Rock On Debate, a one clap speech and debate source for quick tips, hacks, resources, and rock and support to help inspire and assist debaters. I'm Lyle Wiley, your host. Today, I'm here to bring back a policy debate friend of the Rock On Debate podcast, Cheyenne East speech and debate team policy coach Jeff Pope who's here to give an overview of the policy debate topic for 2020-2021, while also answering some questions from yours truly, a coach who is still learning the policy debate ropes. So Jeff joined me to provide a high-level description of this year's topic and an overview of each of the three criminal justice reform areas of the resolution with some possible case constructions as well. So what is this year's policy resolution? Well, it goes like this. Resolved, the United States federal government should enact substantial criminal justice reform in the United States in one or more of the following, forensic science, policing, or sentencing. So strap in for some top-rate thoughts and ideas from Jeff on criminal justice reform, as well as some good general policy debate practice nuggets that come from our discussion. It is a long discussion, runs about the length of a policy round, Um, so I will put some bookmarks in, so if you'd like to kind of skip around a little bit, you may, but of course, uh, I encourage you to listen to the whole episode. Um, But here is Jeff Pope talking about the 2020-2021 policy debate topic. Hi, I'm Jeff Pope. I'm the policy debate coach at Cheyenne East High School. I'm here today to talk to you a little bit about uh, this year's topic, uh, some some thoughts on generally what it means, what the AF is supposed to do, what the NAG is supposed to do, and then a little bit of a breakdown on each area of reform that the topic presents. So let's start big picture. I think, you know, everyone can read the topic for themselves, but there's a couple of key words that I think are going to be really, really important uh, for this year's topic. The first, and it's it's typically important in every resolution, but it I think it's more so important this year, and that's the word substantial. Substantial is, is always included in a policy resolution to ensure that affirmatives aren't very small. And, and as a result of that, there is going to be literature both for the affirmative and for the negative. Uh, this year's topic, because criminal justice reform is both broad and has very specific subsets within even policing, sentencing, or criminal, or uh, excuse me, forensic science, the word substantial is going to force affirmatives to be somewhat large. Uh, and, and that's, and I'm going to talk about a couple of reasons why that's important uh, in determining AF and NEG ground. But as you're sitting down and thinking about the topic, you, the word substantial should really drive your research. It's driven our research about why you have to, in order to truly reform the system, you have to be thinking about is your reform substantial both in the context of changing what happens in the system, affecting a certain number of criminal cases within the criminal justice system, and affecting large portions of, say, forensic science. And I think that's a great one to talk about why substantial is important, because Forensic science is a lot of things, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. But for example, if you wanted to develop a really small affirmative that no one could could research, 
you could have an affirmative all about medical examiners and, and doing something to cause them to practice medical examination differently. And, and that would not be substantial. And that would be very difficult for the negative to deal with. So substantial, critical word on this year's topic. The next, next, I guess, phrase is probably more appropriate is actually criminal justice reform. And I, I mentioned that because it seems obvious, but it's a term of art, which I think is really important to understand when you're thinking about the topic. One mistake I've seen young debaters make is, is to sort of think about words in isolation. What is criminal? What is justice? What does reform mean? And so you think about the topic from that perspective. But critical criminal justice reform is, is used in professional settings by lawyers, by judges, by policymakers. And that phrase has very specific meanings. And let me tell you why those meanings are important. One concern I had when this resolution first came out is that you could have theoretically the reform move both directions. And what I mean by that is take the sentencing portion of the topic. You could have an affirmative that imposes harsher sentences, and that would be reform. And the arguments would be about why the justice system is not strong enough, doesn't deter enough crime, things like that. Uh, and likewise, you could, you could have the, the other side of the equation where the reform for sentencing is to make sentencing lighter and to argue that we should have less people in prison and that that the supposed deterrent effect from punishment really isn't true and it just has more negative consequences than good. Uh, so that, that's, that's a big buildup to why understanding criminal justice reform as a term of art is important because as a term of art, what we have found is that criminal justice reform refers to changing the way the system is to make the system more lenient typically or more helpful, which indicates at least that the direction of the affirmative case should be to decrease sentencing, to change policing, not sort of give police more power, more, you know, you could have an affirmative that would militarize the police, for example. That's probably not what criminal justice reform really is aiming at. So for the, when you're thinking about the topic, both on the affirmative and the negative, on the affirmative, it's important to understand that you probably don't want to wade into those because you might encounter topicality issues, that people would probably be successful in arguing that's not a fair reading of what criminal justice reform means as a term of art. Um, so those, those are the two, two big ones I want to mention. The, the third one um, that I want to mention is policing. And policing, again, may strike you as a pretty obvious part of the topic. We know what police are, we know what they do. But in the context of federal criminal justice reform, and this will be something I'll talk about in a second why it's federal only, federal law enforcement is structured a little bit differently than your traditional local law enforcement, right? We're used to seeing police officers in our cities. We're used to seeing sheriffs, uh, things like that. But that's not what the federal law enforcement system does. You have U.S. Marshals. You have the Border Patrol. You have ICE. Uh, you have those law enforcement agencies. So policing in the context of the federal system, different than, than what you would think. And, and the reason I think that matters is you're going to see affirmatives on this topic that are, are addressing some of the policing issues we see in the news, like defund the police. But the defund the police movement is really talking about local law enforcement. 
the, the stories we've read and seen over the summer that, that produced the unrest, that was local law enforcement. That was city police officers, uh, you know, depending upon where you come out on that, uh, either doing their job or not doing their job. And so those really are not what the topic's about. This, the topic from a policing standpoint is more about what does the FBI do? Uh, what does ICE do? What does the U.S. Marshal Service do? And there are, there are a host of other federal law enforcement agencies. Um, but it, I think it's important to understand that policing really is not, is not what we traditionally think of uh, under this topic. Last one I, I want to mention for y'all is, is forensic science. And the reason I want to mention forensic science is not that there's a lot of trickiness to what it is, uh, more so that it's just really broad. In our research, forensic science in, encompasses what you would sort of see on TV, right? If you if you watch uh, criminal uh, CSI or any crime scene investigation show, I'm I'm an NCIS fan, so they have they have that component to it as well. So you, you sort of think of people in a lab running DNA analysis, ballistics analysis, fingerprinting, things like that. But the the concept of forensic science is a lot broader than that. I, I mentioned medical examination. Uh, so coroners, for example, would fall under the umbrella of forensic science. Uh, you also at the federal level have to be thinking about uh, FBI task forces that investigate terrorists, uh, terrorist activities and the use of uh, weapons of mass destruction. So the federal government, for example, has teams of people that go out and try and locate and identify chemical, biological and nuclear material. And they use forensic science methods to do that. So that, that is encompassed, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, within this topic, which adds an interesting dynamic, but it makes the forensic science piece of the equation really pretty broad. And, and so as you're mindful, if you're mindful of that, it's helpful on the affirmative because it opens up some possibilities that you may not have been thinking about. Um, and likewise, on the negative, it means that you have to be ready for those, those possibilities. So let's, let me segue from that uh, into talking a little bit about how this topic differentiates what should be affirmative ground from what should be negative ground. And I, I try to, when I look at a resolution, think about in the most basic terms, what's the basic AF position and what's the basic negative position. So here, the basic affirmative position is reforming the federal system. Because one thing that you, most people probably don't think about is that the criminal justice system in the United States is split. There's the federal system, which is what this topic is about, and the state system. Now, the state system makes up, I think, 95% of the criminal cases in the United States. It's where the vast majority of that work is done, both from a forensic science, policing, and sentencing standpoint. And the federal system uh, is much more limited because uh, federal authority over crimes is, is limited jurisdictionally. So you don't, you know, for example, what we would think of, of typical crimes, murder, uh, possession of drugs, selling drugs, uh, driving under the influence, robbery, those are state crimes. And those are, those are almost always prosecuted as part of the state system. Federal, federal crimes are things like transporting drugs across state lines, uh, vast civil conspiracies to, uh, you know, defraud people, uh, securities and exchange commission issues, sort of stock fraud or what you may have, if you're 
go back and study what happened in 2007, 2008 with the the mortgage crisis uh, concerns about that. That's where federal criminal law really comes in. And so what that means for this topic is the affirmative is sort of stuck in the position of saying we want to reform the federal system, but understanding that that reform doesn't affect the vast majority of criminal justice. So the affirmative has sort of two duties here. Prove that you got to change the federal system and then also prove that a change in the federal system will affect the state system. The negative, on the other hand, is naturally in the position of saying changing the federal system is inadequate to address criminal justice reform. That, in fact, you have to change what's going on at the state level. So what does that mean practically? That's kind of the high level concept of where we think the AF should be and where we think the NEG should be. Well, like a lot of these type of topics, and if you if you were around as a coach or, or even a competitor for the education topic a few years ago, it sets up naturally for a, a federalism and state's counterplan versus the affirmative debate, where an affirmative, uh, for example, may uh, you you know may utilize funding as a means to coerce the states to change their policing, which is is something the federal government can do. So you could have an affirmative that changes federal policing and uses funds to try and change state policing. The negative then sets up to say, no, in fact, we should have the states change their policing and by having the federal government encroach into what is typically reserved for state criminal justice, you've upset the balance of power between the federal and the state governments. So that's that's going to be your quote unquote traditional format for this debate. So for those of you who are judges and are hearing this, uh, strap yourselves in for a lot of federalism states counterplan debates for, for better or worse. Um, but, under, but understanding that division uh, is also important in, in evaluating solvency arguments. Uh, the, the breadth and scope of most affirmatives are going to be about the system as a whole. You know, for example, sentencing. There's a lot of evidence and arguments out there about why sentencing is too harsh, that we keep people in jail too long, or that we put people in jail for offenses that, that really aren't fit to actually incarcerate someone. Maybe it's they need mental health treatment or they need drug rehabilitation, something like that, but not prison. Well, again, the vast majority of those cases are going to be in the state system. So the affirmative is going to have to grapple with how do we take evidence that's really about what's going on in the state and incorporate that into an affirmative where we're able to resolve those problems. And so I think on the affirmative, you're going to both see and need to argue uh, federal action leads to state action. I think that's going to be a big debate this year. And it's going to be a big debate pretty much for all areas of this topic. Uh, And then naturally on the negative, you're going to have the flip side of the states won't follow. And, And I think the teams that pay attention to that and are up on that argument are going to be in a better position, um, better position to deal with, with the topic as a whole. Um, last, last note on that sort of solvency problem is, and I'll, I'll leave it to the individual teams to think through this, but the the reach of the affirmative's solvency to resolve what might be state court, state criminal justice issues is actually kind of some interesting tactical ground and how you would use that as the negative. Because you can, unlike, say, last year's topic where the affirmative was arms sales, right? You sold arms. 
there wasn't there wasn't a state component that was exclusively in the realm of the federal government. And you really didn't have the ability to say another country should stop selling arms because that doesn't resolve the, you know, the United States issues. This is a topic where the negative can use things like federalism to sort of force the affirmative into one position or the other. And and affirmatives have to be ready to deal with that. But if you think through kind of the consequences of federal system, state system, and the interaction between the two of those and the potential arguments as they interact, uh, I think you're going to have some really interesting strategies uh, from teams as, as they really begin to think about that. And, and strategies where, uh, you know, if you're, if you're really thinking about it, you, you throw out uh, a couple of arguments that force the affirmative to choose, which if you're affirmative, you never like to choose where you're going to go. You like to just argue your own ground. So let me let me pause there and uh, Lyle, do you have any any questions on that? I understand that uh, that you know that certain crimes fall under state jurisdiction or they they just are handled at the state level, and then other crimes are federal crimes. I mean, I guess what I'm confused about is you could try to argue that your plan is affecting either or, and as a neg, you want to try to force somebody to make that decision, right? So, well, let me put let me put it this way. As the affirmative, you you can make a couple of choices. You can either say we're going to do something that affects only the federal system, yep. and then in response to arguments about well that that leaves the state system unaddressed, you can argue well the states are going to follow the federal government's lead. You know they they look to the federal government for leadership. Federal government is going a certain direction, so they they will follow. That's one avenue that you can do. Another avenue that you can do is just have the federal government tell the states what to do. And, and you can attempt to deal with arguments about federalism, uh, for example, and why, you know, you would disrupt the balance of power between the federal and the state governments. Uh, and then the third, the third component that I think you're going to see affirmatives use, and, and this was certainly true on the education topic, is uh, what, what's called coercive funding. Um, and Lyle, you're a teacher, so you're, you're familiar with Common Core, I, I would assume. Common Core was a federal idea. And that, that standard was sort of forced upon the states, if you will, because the federal government said, well, if you're not going to implement Common Core, then you will lose funding from the Department of Education. And so states who were you know, strapped for cash, they said, OK, we'll, we'll do that and we'll keep getting that money. And so I think you're going to see this kind of similar arguments because the, the federal government does fund through several programs, a fair amount of the criminal justice system. There's certainly funding that goes to forensic science laboratories, police organizations get get federal monies. Um, the sentencing component, not so much. Um, I'll talk about that later, why that's more of a almost a legal issue as opposed to a, a policy issue. Uh, but certainly there, there's interaction between the federal and state courts. So I think you're going to affirmatives can go one of those directions. And then the negative can can sort of, depending upon which direction the affirmative goes, try to pigeonhole them one way or the other. Your your original question about the distinction between the federal and state system, it's really the genesis of why federalism is a disset on this topic, because it's it's rooted in the Constitution. Uh, You know, the Constitution, I think most people understand that it sets out the authority of the federal government. And if it's not in the Constitution, then the federal government doesn't get to do it and, it and it reverts to the states. And so criminal justice was one of those things that was reverted to the states. And 
without boring you too much on legal history, that that was a common practice at the time of the Constitution where the common law of each jurisdiction really set up what was criminal and what was not, as opposed to the overarching federal federal government. So that tradition sort of continued. Uh, And then the federal government um, over the last couple hundred years uh, has has tried to define and carve out federal crimes that are that are sort of tethered to specific f- authority given to the federal government, and the Constitution. So that that's why, for example, cross state crimes typically fall under the jurisdiction of a federal uh, the federal criminal justice system, as opposed to you know somebody has drugs in Wyoming, never leaves Wyoming, and gets arrested. That's going to be a state crime. But someone who transports drugs from Colorado to Wyoming is going to, it could certainly could face state charges as well, but will also face federal charges. That clarifies a lot. There's probably not a preferred sort of approach on the, the NIG or the AF in terms of which direction they go. They just have to know what they're talking about. You think? Yeah, I think my, I'll give you sort of my theory of being affirmative. Uh, my, theory of being affirmative is that you want to adopt the most defensible position, both logically and from an evidence standpoint. I think you get in trouble when you're affirmative, when you when you put yourself out there too far and, and both judges and other competitors go, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and let me give you an example uh, using the education topic. Our affirmative that year was to have the federal government mandate that schools start later. And so our affirmative was all about kids should sleep longer. Logical, there was good evidence on it, pretty simple premise to defend. Um, so I, I think this, as affirmatives think about this year's topic, you, you got to be smart about what can you defend. So that's, that's why the further affirmatives push into we're going to cause the states to change, that's going to be tough ground because you're going to have to sort of defend and win the proposition that all 50 states are going to are going to do what the federal government does to really capture all your solvency. I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but I think one mistake a lot of people in policy debate make is that is thinking the thinking that more is more, but less is more. You know, it simple straightforward arguments are good. That's that's how you I think really win debates. That's how and, and I think even at the highest levels of competition I'll give you a great example. I won't sidetrack us too much here, but a couple of years ago, the semifinal round of nationals, the affirmative, this was the infrastructure topic. The affirmative was to build airports on islands. That was the affirmative. The negative read a critique, big critique, really fast, and it was all about racism. And the affirmative won that debate on a 5-0 decision on the argument that we don't think building airports on islands is racist. And that was that was it. And you know, there, there were lots of arguments flying around, but the affirmative just kind of hunkered down and said, no, we're, we're going to win on a very simple, straightforward premise. And they, they can throw all the stuff they want at you. But if they can't beat that premise, they can't win the debate. Let's talk about policing, uh, the policing portion of this topic. As I mentioned, it, it's an important term because policing at the federal level is different than policing at the state level. And it's and that difference is is pretty important because affirmatives. And if you look on, for example, the Open Evidence Project, where it has all the uh, debate camp affirmatives out there, there's a lot of them that are really about the role that local law enforcement plays in the criminal justice system and why that 
you know, the current state of things may not be good. But in reality, an affirmative that can have the federal government do something is really limited to reforming federal law enforcement agencies. So you got to be paying attention to that. That's the FBI. That's the U.S. Marshals. That's ICE. That's, uh, you know, shockingly, the Department of Education has a law enforcement wing. You wouldn't think that, but uh, they they have a SWAT team. Uh, Little known fact. Not sure why they have a SWAT team, but they do. Um, So paying attention to that is important twofold. Number one, it should shape your research. you know, one of the mistakes that affirmatives tend to make is they will read evidence that talks about policing, but they don't pay attention to that evidence maybe in the con- is talking in the context of local law enforcement. So if you're affirmative and you want to talk about why, for example, the Border Patrol isn't doing what they need to be doing and they need to be reformed, then you got to make sure that your evidence about policing is specific to Border Patrol or at least specific to the federal level. Second thing about the policing portion of of this topic is that there is overlap with the forensic science portion of the topic, particularly in the area of the FBI. The FBI does a ton of forensic science work, and it does ballistics analysis, fingerprint analysis, bite mark analysis. Uh, it does. It, it houses the the big DNA database that a lot of uh, local crime labs use. Uh, so th- that's important because in in figuring out what portion of the topic you fall under, be mindful of that. FBI reforms, for example, could could really be forensic science reforms as opposed to policing reforms, um, and that's that distinction is important. Uh, if people read topicality against you, because you can defend that affirmative rather than be a policing affirmative, you can defend it on forensic science. Uh, but it's also important in understanding maybe how you frame the affirmative. And, and that's that's probably the biggest point on this topic I can offer people is that for better or worse, this is a hot button issue topic. You know, some some topics we get, people are kind of like, okay, what is this we're, we're talking about? Um, you know, it's very middle of the road stuff. I I mentioned the infrastructure topic, not too many people get, get polarized or upset about roads and bridges. So that, that was a pretty safe topic, but this is a topic where it's playing out in the news in real time. And, and so you got to be sensitive to that. And policing is, is front and center for that. We we've seen, uh, you know, what's happened over the summer. We've seen the protests and, and, and frankly, you've seen the division. You've got the, you know, you've got the def- defund the police folks. You've got the uh, thin blue line folks, uh, you know, and, and, and people in the middle. And so as you're approaching this portion of the topic, you got to be cognizant of that. You got to be cognizant of how you present it. And you got to be cognizant of who's in the back of the room judging you on the police por- policing portion of the topic. You never want to make the assumption, for example, well, I'm in Wyoming typically conservative. Therefore, the judge in the back of the room is probably, you know, thin blue line or, or, you know, oh, I'm in, I'm at the University of Wyoming tournament. I've got college people. Gosh, they must be defund the police people because they're, they're college kids. And so, unfortunately, the policing portion of the topic, I think if you're affirmative, you got to be a little bit smarter about than, than you might otherwise think. You know, you may think like a defund the police or reform the police affirmative is a good idea, but you're going to provoke reactions from your judges and you're going to have a large literature base. One one strategic component 
um, when you're thinking about being an affirmative is what is the amount of literature both in favor of the affirmative and against the affirmative? And much more mainstream hot button issues like policing, you're going to have a lot of people writing for it, against it. And so you're going to face, you might say, oh, as the affirmative, I have a lot of great arguments. But the negative is going to say, we got a lot of those too. And you may be a great debater, but I, I will tell you, it's a lot easier to win when you are, the, the literature is slanted to one side <laughs> and you've got, you've got the upper hand there. So don't, don't feel like you got to crash into it head on. Um, and, and let me let me kind of tell you practically what I what that means is there's a lot of aspects of policing that aren't going to invoke the same passion that say just dealing with uh, traditional law enforcement pulling people over investigating crimes would do uh, the novice topic area is a great demonstration of that facial recognition not a lot of people are going to get super passionate about facial recognition but. It also is one of those areas that kind of bridges the divide of the folks I was talking about before, people that are concerned about overreach of law enforcement, they're not going to like facial recognition, and the people who are you know, advocates of privacy and they're at their own rights, individual rights, they're going to not like facial recognition. So, so there's some tactical and strategic affirmative areas under the policing portion of the topic that you really should give, give some thought and consideration to. Uh, big data is another one, and it kind of goes hand in hand with facial recognition. But one of the things that law enforcement is doing nowadays is they're they're using computers to to help them identify potential hotspots of criminal activity, and and dictate policing patterns as a result of that. And there there are certainly arguments about why that uh, might be flawed, uh, why there might be biases or bad data going into that analysis. So you've got some interesting portions of the policing area of the topic that that I think you can sidestep some of the, uh, call it political concerns that you would encounter uh, with, that, with that portion of the topic. Um, real quickly, uh, before I end on that, let me, let me give you kind of a basic overview of what I think some affirmative arguments and negative arguments are gonna be for the policing portion of the topic. Uh, the affirmative obviously uh, has uh, race-based arguments. Those are, those are certainly playing out in the news arguing why uh, law enforcement uh, may be an example of structural racism. Uh, there are arguments about privacy and individual rights, about the police uh, using facial recognition, for example. Uh, you also have uh, deterrence arguments, or what, what I've seen in the literature called deterrence backlash, the idea that increased policing somehow deters crime, but it in fact can have the opposite result uh, because it provokes a response from the community. And so I think that's the direction a lot of the policing arguments are going to go. And, and policing is one of the areas of this topic. If you want to get into large impacts, uh, you, you probably have a better chance than, say, forensic science for getting there. So if you are thinking, I need, I'm going to a tournament where I'm going to hit people reading disadvantages with large impacts, I need large impacts too, policing is probably the portion of the topic you're going to go down. Negative arguments uh, tend to break down into a couple of areas. Uh, first, uh, I think you're going to get a lot of uh, backlash arguments, uh, sort of kind of exactly what we've seen play out uh, in the real world, where people have moved to defund the police and you get a backlash from the community about why that would be bad. I think you're going to see arguments very much in line with those and, and maybe why that 
that negative community response could, could lead to other negative consequences. Uh, one obvious other argument is going to be crime arguments. You're going to see a lot of arguments about how reforming the police, maybe reducing the budget, reducing the amount of police officers, reducing their authority, reducing uh, the technology available to them will lead to more crime and, and arguments as to why crime is bad. So I think, I think those are going to be the core areas of that. And then, as, as I talked about before, given that policing is a pretty distinctive area at the federal level versus at the state level, the federalism state's counterplan arguments are, are going to be very, very prevalent for this part of the topic. So I'll pause there and, and see if you have any questions. So I'm having some flashbacks. Um, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe like six years ago, so it's a surveillance topic or something mm-hmm. like that, that there were maybe several different kinds of, cases that i'm remembering that were similar um different but similar like facial recognition um software some bad data arguments i don't know am i do you remember this am i like making this up in my head no no you're 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 dead on um facial recognition was was definitely part of the domestic surveillance topic domestic surveillance yeah yeah the interesting and this this is a good distinction to bring up a lot of those arguments were in the context of say the NSA those programs, which I I don't believe would fall under federal policing. That's, that's not what the NSA exists to do. They're not a a law enforcement agency. They're an intelligence organization. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a lot of the, the the arguments, uh, the premises of the arguments are going to be the same. I think you're going to have a lot of, we, we saw on that topic, a lot of rights based arguments, you know, I have the right to privacy. So the NSA shouldn't be snooping around on my computer. I think you're going to see the the same thing. Um, the the other the other affirmative that leaps to mind from that topic that I think you could see is the is the third party doctrine. Um, that's a legal doctrine that allows if you're giving information to third parties, uh, law enforcement can can access that without a warrant. So, for example, they can go get your text messages or your emails that are stored on a on a third party server. And you could, you could definitely see those because uh, federal law enforcement definitely <laughs> uses that doctrine when they need to. So that was a domestic surveillance topic. Well, was that was that like two thousand two thousand fifteen fourteen? I don't know. I have to look. Sounds it up. It sounds right. I it was at least at least five years ago. I was just thinking it might it might be a good place for uh, especially for my novices to watch a couple rounds because it's like not the same obviously but maybe could could give them some thoughts that are similar. No, for sure. I think topic. I think in terms of policing arguments, you'd see see those. Um, I've, I've sort of beat the federalism states counterplan horse perhaps to death, but uh, the education topic you're gonna you go back yes. and watch those. You're gonna you're gonna see the same debates. That's right. Yeah. That happened a ton in the education one. That's right. Mm-hmm. Almost every and in the education <laughs> one, it was inevitable because the federal government really has no authority to regulate beyond funding. So any affirmative that was like, we're going to tell you states what to do, that's not kosher from a federalism perspective. Yeah, I, I do. It almost came up in every single debate, though. It was, it was really... Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that you, you could be right. This could be another one of those kind of topics where that just ends up happening quite a bit. Yeah. I, not to take us on a side tangent too much, but when we draft domestic topics, 
mm-hmm. tend not to be smart about this issue. It would be really smart for um, domestic topics to be topics related to concurrent jurisdiction issues, like infrastructure, for example. There's authority at the federal and the state level to do that. So you, you, that opens up a wide range of options, and it means that the federalism states counterplan debate really isn't super useful. But when you've got topics where the line between the feds and the states are clearly delineated, that, that debate's inevitable. Well, that's interesting. Um, I wonder if those topics just kind of end up happening, though, because they're just more controversial, hot button things that people are interested in, you know. Oh yeah, for sure. And and at a certain level, domestic policy issues, there's not a lot of sexy ones, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> compared to foreign policy issues. So it I, I get it. It's hard. You gotta uh you gotta you gotta gin something up. <laughs> Why don't I transition now and I'll I'll talk about sentencing. Okay. Um so the sentencing portion of the topic is a little bit unique, I think, because the role sentencing is rooted entirely in the law. Um, the, you know, as a preface, I'm a lawyer, so I'll, I'll try and walk through this without getting myself lost in, in my own minutia. But uh, the way a sentencing, our sentencing system works in the country is either a federal statute or a state statute that makes something a crime also has with it a penalty. A sentence, and, and that that will be more often than not a range. There's not, you know, you commit crime X, you're going to jail for five years. More often than not, it's it's one to five years, or or ten to twenty years. Um, and so each crime carries with it a a specific sentence. And because it's a range, the judge who handles the case has a lot of discretion uh, to decide the sentence. And in in the state system. Uh, For example, Wyoming, there's a tremendous amount of discretion when it comes to sentencing. So when someone is convicted of a crime in Wyoming, uh, there's a break, uh, there's a trial, there's a conviction, and then there's usually a period of time where uh, the law enforcement agency or a branch of the law enforcement agency will put together what's called a pre-sentence investigation report, detailing a lot of the factors that the court might want to consider about the individual when they sentence them. And the court will get that, and then the court will hold a hearing where the prosecution can argue on behalf of a certain sentence, and the defense can argue on behalf of another one, and the court can consider all of that, uh, the report it received, uh, statements from the victim, the victim's families, if there are any, and, and then make a decision about sentencing. So there's a lot of variables that go into that. At the federal level, there's even sort of more variables uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one is the federal sentencing guidelines. Uh, this, those were put together in a, quite a long time ago, and, and they're essentially almost like a flowchart where the, the federal judge who is going to sentence someone looks at the guidelines and says, okay, we've got crime X, and if certain things happen, this should be the sentence, and if certain other things happen, this should be the sentence. Uh, you also have at the federal level mandatory minimums, and states have these too. But but certain federal crimes, you even though the range might be two to five, uh, there might be a mandatory minimum of of three, depending upon the crime. So you've got that layered on top of what the judge has to decide. Then uh, going back to the federal sentencing guidelines, uh, there 
the, the federal judge can exceed the, the recommended penalty, but because of constitutional concerns, the court can only exceed that if the jury who convicted the person of the crime makes the factual findings necessary uh, to satisfy what are, what are called aggravating factors. So for example, um, let's say, and I'll use a pretty basic crime here. Let's say you have a, a domestic abuse crime. Um, you know, husband beats up wife. Uh, that, that crime in and of itself will carry a certain penalty. But if, for example, during that crime, the husband pulled a gun and, and there was a firearm involved, that is considered an aggravating factor that could uh, allow the judge to increase the sentence at the federal level, provided the jury who convicted that person found that, that he used a gun in the commission of that crime. So there's a lot of variables legally when it comes to, to sentencing someone, uh, both at the federal level and the state level. And, and I think it's important to understand that because well, for two reasons. First, when you are doing research on sentencing, if you're not thinking about those nuances, you could miss arguments or you could try to utilize evidence that really is inapplicable to your affirmative, for example. Um, and I've already seen that actually on my team where we, we had some folks dig up some evidence where they thought would be helpful for mandatory minimums, but it was really talking about federal sentencing guideline issues. So you, you just have to be careful uh, with that kind of stuff. Uh, but the nice thing about the sensing portion of the topic is there's a lot of stuff out there to explain it. And, it, and it's also one of the few areas uh, for coaches where I think subject matter experts are readily available. You've got criminal practitioners in towns and you've got judges uh, in towns. And so I will tell you uh, that from my own experience, I think if you're a coach and you want, you know, Lyle, you wanted to have your kids get a little more understanding about sentencing, call your local judge. And, and that judge will, I, I think, more often than not be happy to come in and talk. You know, for example, uh, we're going to have a judge come in and, and talk to our kids. Um, and, and it's fairly straightforward to do. They're, they're happy to educate the public. It's, it's something they do, do frequently in other forums. Um, and, and so I, I think you'll see a lot of them jump at the opportunity uh, to do something like that. So it's uh, one benefit uh, of this topic is you you can really, you know, arm sales, you, you can't call up the State Department and have them explain stuff. But uh, but judges and, and lawyers are, you know, throw a rock, you might you might hit one of them in Wyoming. There's well, a lot of them given our population. A couple other things uh, about about sentencing. Uh, this this is another portion of the topic where there is a, a real bright line between the federal system and the state system. Uh, the, the federal system, the sentencing is, is set by federal statute. Uh, the state system sentencing is set by state statute. And there, there is no constitutional basis, at least, for the federal government to tell states how to uh, sentence people. Uh, the, the lone exception for that uh, is the death penalty. I haven't seen a lot of death penalty affirmatives, uh, at least on, on open evidence, but the death penalty can get analyzed uh, under the cruel and unusual punishment uh, portion of the Constitution. There's a, an amendment that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. And the U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted that provision in certain death penalty cases. For example, um, minors 
uh, cannot be sentenced to the death penalty because it would be considered cruel and unusual. And that's one of the few uh, amendments that is made applicable to the states. So most, again, I would try, try not to get lost in the legal minutiae here, but most amendments to the federal constitution are applicable only at the federal level. But a handful of them, uh, thanks to U.S. Supreme Court decisions, are applicable to the states through the due process clause. Uh, the, the idea that you can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And so, for example, the Reconstruction Amendments that came out of the Civil War, those are applicable to the states. Uh, the, the Eighth Amendment, which is cruel and unusual punishment. Was it seventh? I think it's seventh or eighth. <laughs> One of those two. It's applicable to the states as well uh, through that same through that same thought process. Um, so, so that that means really there is this is a, a federalism states counterplan debate written all over it, uh, with the exception of of federal sentencing guidelines. That is unique to the federal system, and so affirmatives can target that as a way to just stay within the confines uh, the confines there. Last thing I want to mention about just generally about sentencing before I talk a little bit about what the affirmative and the negative might argue uh, is the notion that it this is one of the areas of the the only area of the topic uh, that's exclusively in the courtroom. Policing happens outside the courtroom. Law enforcement happens outside the courtroom. Forensic science has a little bit of overlap. Most of it's outside the courtroom, but there is certainly some inside the courtroom stuff. Um, but sentencing is exclusively in the courtroom. So I think if, you, if you're going to read a sentencing affirmative, for example, I think it's really important that you understand what a criminal trial looks like, how it plays out. And there's a lot of stuff out there about it, uh, not on TV. That's, that's not what they are. Um, but, you know, you can, you can find a lot of resources to, to walk you through how it begins, uh, you know, what the trial looks like, how the sentencing phase, how all of that works. Um, you know, and then, like I said, there's, there's folks out there who work in that every day who sure would love to come in and talk about it. But you got to understand that uh, because a lot of the, the reasons why sentencing is bad uh, have to do with, with things that happen in the courtroom. So, for example, plea bargain uh, arguments are going to be uh, important on the sentencing portion of the topic. Well, plea bargains are a part of the criminal process. You got to understand what they are, what prompts them to happen, why they might be good, why they might be bad. Okay, let's talk about AF ground and, and or excuse me, AF arguments and, and NAG arguments for the sentencing portion of the topic. Some obvious ones for the affirmative are mandatory minimums. Uh, there's a lot of arguments out there about why that. Uh, as I mentioned, plea bargains, why that forces plea bargains, and, and a lot of people end up in jail as a result of that, um, and, and a lot of arguments why we have too many people in prison uh, for crimes that, that either the penalty is too harsh or just it doesn't make sense to have them in prison. Um, you're going to have a lot of affirmatives, uh, I, I think, at least, about the federal sentencing guidelines and why those might be a bad idea, because it one of the chief arguments for that is it it takes the human element out of the equation that a judge is is just checking the chart, seeing where it goes, and and not necessarily thinking through um, the human element of, of the person in front of them and, and the crime in front of them and the victim involved in the case. It's it's more math than it is uh, art. Um, I think those are those are the the chief 
areas, uh, at least at the federal system. The state level stuff, I think you're going to have difficulty with because one other difficult component of this topic is every state criminal justice system is different. There's no uniformity. What Wyoming does is totally different than what Colorado does, different than Montana, so on and so forth. Um, I used to work in the in the criminal arena, and the amount of times I look at Colorado and go, "What is that? I that that I don't know what that is." Um, and I'm sure they would look at us and do the same thing. So that lack of uniformity is going to make it really hard uh, for an affirmative to to really have short, simple affirmative that, that is going to deal with those issues. Um, and likewise, uh, on the negative, it, it's going to make running the state's counter plan pretty difficult because you're, you're not going to have uniformity. So doing, having the states all do the same thing is probably not going to have the same consequence in every state. Um, the, the, negative, the negative here, again, you're going to get a lot of soft on crime stuff because most of the sentencing affirmatives will be about reducing the sentence. Um, so you're going to have uh, crime-based disadvantages. You're going to have backlash arguments. You're going to have deterrence good arguments that we need strong sentencing regimes to deter crime. Um, so all of those are going to be wrapped up. One final note about sentencing uh, that I think uh, is important when you're thinking about the topic. Sentencing and prison are different. I've seen a lot of affirmatives that deal with reforming the prison system. The prison system is separate and apart from sentencing. The, the two, one obviously leads to the other, but the administration and uh, policy decisions for both of those are, are separate. So affirmatives that try to reform the prison system, I think are, are going to have a real challenge when it comes to a topicality debate, for example, because it's, at least as far as I'm concerned, it is, it is not topical. So I'll, I'll pause there and see if you have any questions. You think we're going to see a lot of those prison reform kind of attempts? For sure, uh, at least based on the open evidence, uh, the stuff coming out of the camps. There, there were a fair amount of yeah. affirmatives, and, and I get it. It's a natural extension of of why sentencing is bad because you're sending people to prison, um, but reforming the actual prison system very different than than reforming the sentencing system. The the mandatory minimums is a is a case I've seen a bunch. Um, are you guys? Do you guys have a couple of those kinds of cases too? Like I've we got a, I've got a kid um, working on one. Yeah, we we have a couple of those, um, and and the argument there is mainly focused or it's focused around plea bargains. There's a lot of arguments that uh, because when you're if you're a defendant in the criminal justice system, you've got a way. Well, if I go to trial, what's my likelihood of winning? What's my likelihood of losing compared to a prosecutor who comes to you and says, okay, if you'll plead guilty, we'll either charge you with a lesser crime. So it carries a lesser sentence. So you spend less time in jail or we'll argue that you should get the minimum, for example. So you're, it's a cost benefit analysis of all of that. Um, and, you know, you end up with a lot of defendants for, for a host of different reasons, taking a plea deal and, uh, you know, going to jail. Uh, and, and there's ar- certainly arguments for why uh, you get a lot of plea deals in cases where jail time might not be the, the best remedy uh, for that particular crime. 
love your thought about contacting a judge. Um, we even have we have a judge that has a student at the high school who I know would oh, be more than willing to talk to some kids. How, how would I contact that judge? What would I tell them exactly what I want them to tell my kids? I guess I don't want to make it too broad. You know, I want to make sure that they can right. prepare in a way that would be manageable. Um, so what I'll, I'll give you, I'll just tell you what I, I did. Um, sure. And admittedly, my experience is probably a little different because the judge I reached out to is my wife's uncle. So I know him in a, in a different setting. Um, but I, I think a judge, for example, would be most valuable in explaining uh, the trial process and then the, the process a criminal case goes through and then really explaining what sentencing is all about, you know, what they do. Cause I, you know, the impression uh, I, at least I perceive people have is that sentencing is, you know, the jury comes back and says, we find you guilty of X. And then the judge immediately turns to the def- defendant and says, okay, therefore I sentence you to 10 years in prison. And the actual process is is a lot lot different than that. There's a lot more time, uh, you know, a lot more going on behind the scenes that that goes into uh, a sentencing decision. Um, and, and so I think it would they would be super helpful in explaining that process, what sentencing does. Um, and, and frankly, it's you know if if we didn't have to deal with the virus, you know, one of the thoughts I had was get my kids to a sentencing hearing. So they could they could see it. I mean, they're open to the public. You, you know, you can you can go and watch. Um, but yeah, having them come in, talk about that, talk about the process. Um, you know, and if you don't have access to a judge, for example, let's say you're, you know, there's certain towns in Wyoming where there's not a sitting judge in that town. Um, they're in another county. You're going to have uh, defense lawyers, criminal defense lawyers. You're going to have prosecutors uh, who will come in and talk. And, and Lyle, I, I don't know how broad your audience is here, but I will, I will offer up my, you know, I'd be happy to reach out to anybody, you know, lawyer or judge. If a coach is like, I love that, but I don't know where to start. I, you know, I've appeared in front of a lot of them and and know a lot of them. And so I'd I'd be happy to reach out to to folks and say, Hey, you know, this high school needs you to come talk to them about that. And then I, I, I can't think of a judge who wouldn't say, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to do that. I think it's just, I mean, it's just one of those positions that I think is a little bit intimidating. <laughs> like oh, people. yeah. Yeah, no, for um, sure. But, you know, I, from an outsider's perspective, I get that. The, fun, the funny thing is when, you know, you're a lawyer and you're interacting with judges, you, you learn not, you know, not to be super intimidated by them. You know, <laughs> we're really nice, regular folks. And, you know, the, fun, the funny thing, and maybe this will put folks at ease about asking them, being a judge is a pretty lonely occupation. Because you don't, you, you can't like, you used to be a lawyer, now you're a judge, but you can't go fraternize and socialize with all the lawyers because you don't look biased. Um, you obviously have to be a little bit wary about your social circle because you could end up dealing with a criminal that you, you may know. So you, these kind of educational outreach opportunities are, for lack of a better word, way to get there some human interaction that they may not otherwise get. Media film television sort of makes us have some pictures of different kinds of positional power like positions of power and i think that judges just kind of hold this like gravitas like in our mind that i think it becomes a little intimidating but i'm sure they're just people (laughs) there's certainly a reason for that and it's important for judges you know 
be respected. But I, I will tell you, I, I think our the Wyoming judiciary, for example, uh, education is super important to them. I, you know, give, give you a great example: the Wyoming Supreme Court, prior to the, the pandemic, um, twice a year they uh, they do oral arguments somewhere other than the court. They travel somewhere and they have arguments. Uh, you know, I I did one up in Torrington uh, a number of years ago. And, you know, it's, it's get the public there and then they've got a Q&A afterwards. And, and the whole idea behind that is to let people see the process, you know, and educate people about it. So that's, it's a, it's a big thing uh, for them. And I, I think you're going to find a, a really willing audience for that. Cool. Yeah, I think that's an awesome suggestion and pretty easy thing to do, especially because you're probably going to be Zooming that call or, or talking to them. Yeah. Via, yeah. Some mm-hmm. sort of remote technology anyway. So very right. And it, what, one thing I didn't mention. So uh, from just an actual, how do you contact them perspective? Mm-hmm. The best thing to do is to look up uh, their judicial assistant. It's their, you know, uh, secretary scheduler does all that kind of stuff. Uh, they're very, very nice people. Uh, their phone numbers are usually listed on the, uh, the district courts website or circuit courts website. Um, just give them a call and say, Hey, I'm, so-and-so from such and such high school. And, uh, you know, we're, we're debating this topic and we'd be curious if the judge would be interested in coming and tell us about sentencing. And I, I think you're going to, again, find a warm reception to that, to that notion. Well, then I'll, I'll move on and talk about forensic science. Um, so forensic science, uh, strangely enough, and I did not think this at the beginning when the topic came out, but in, in doing research, this is the broadest part of the topic. Uh, there, there are way more things involved in forensic science than, than I figured. Um, there are a lot more arguments about forensic science and why it needs to get reformed than I really thought there were going to be. Uh, and so it, it really is a potentially in, very interesting part of the topic because you, you certainly have your DNA analysis, ballistics, fingerprinting. Uh, type affirmatives that, that deal with reform on that. Um, but you, you've got, as I mentioned earlier, you've got the use of forensic science to investigate terrorist activities, to investigate and identify nuclear weapons, uh, coroner's offices. Uh, I had no idea there was forensic uh, dental work uh, that, that is out there. Um, you've, got, you've got a whole host of activities. Uh, one thing that's, I think, really important about the forensic science part of this topic is, is unlike policing and sentencing, there's kind of a seminal uh, moment in forensic science that, that really dictates what goes on for this part of the topic. And that's in 2009. The, the federal government had commissioned a, a study on the state of forensic science in the United States and the study that was released in 2009 came back and said, you know what, uh, most forensic science that's being done in the United States is garbage and is, is not actually scientific. Uh, it's not, there are no standards. Uh, the people who are, are doing it aren't trained. You know, we, we sort of get this impression, I think, from, from TV that your forensic science is this PhD in a laboratory who's super smart, uh, but in in practice, the person doing your forensic science might only have a high school diploma and, and no real training, which is 
which is really scary uh, if you think about because that person is doing analysis that could lead to the conviction of, of a criminal defendant. Uh, and if they're doing shoddy forensic science work, you, you're going to you could wrongfully convict someone, convict the wrong person um, or submit evidence uh, that leads to a conviction when that evidence is really bad. So there, that, that 2009 report sparked a lot of analysis and a lot of literature uh, on this topic and, and on some very specific issues. So I, I, this is surprisingly one of the areas of the resolution where there's a lot out there, there's a lot to read, and, and there's sort of an, an easy gateway to understanding this part of the topic, at least on the affirmative. You, you go and you read that 2009 report. There's lots of stuff after it. There's lots of other stuff. But that'll that'll give you a great flavor for the topic and for, for this part of the topic. Um, and the, the other interesting component about it is it provides some very specific policy recommendations for the federal government, and some of which were implemented, uh, some were not. And, and so you actually have, unlike most topics, you've got a paper out there that says, hey, here's a plan. So if you if you uh if you want kind of an easy access to an affirmative argument, that's a, that's a great place to go. Um, and then it, from there, it sets up uh, a lot of the specific arguments, and I'll, I'll talk about those, uh, those in just a second. One, the other component about forensic science that I think is important to understand, I mentioned this a little bit ago, it straddles a little bit of the different parts of the criminal justice system. So I, I guess I didn't talk about this, but I probably should have. I mean, what we what this topic is uh, is focused on is uh, really only two parts of the criminal justice system. You've got the law enforcement investigation aspect of criminal justice, and that's forensic science and uh, policing. Uh, then you have the penalty component of the criminal justice system, which is the sentencing component. But the the sort of piece in the middle uh, is the actual criminal case trial process that is is what happens after the investigation, but before the penalty phase of the criminal justice system. Forensic science is one of the, is the only area of the topic that kind of bleeds into the courtroom and during a case, because forensic science is used to not only identify a defendant, for example, identify someone who committed a crime, but it is also used in the courtroom to convict that person, uh, a, a witness, a, you know, forensic scientist or someone from a crime laboratory will come in and, and testify about uh, the work they did and typically will introduce evidence. Uh, you know, maybe they, their job was to test a baggie to see if it was filled with drugs. And so they'll come in and talk about what they did and they'll, they'll introduce the baggie of whatever the substance is and confirm whether or not that's, that's an illegal substance, for example. So this is, this is an area that in order to, I think, effectively argue it, you got to understand a little bit about the, the actual process that plays out in the courtroom. You know, what, what is it that witnesses talk about? Um, the, the distinction between factual witnesses and expert witnesses, uh, because forensic scientists are considered expert witnesses in the courtroom. Uh, the, other, the other thing that that draws in uh, Again, I'll, I'll try to avoid the, the legal minutiae here. Uh, it draws in the rules of evidence. So in a courtroom, uh, both at a, in a criminal setting and a civil setting, there are rules of evidence. And those are rules that define what type of documents, what type of testimony, 
uh, is actually allowed in uh, to a courtroom and allowed for a jury to to hear and, and consider. And again, this is another distinction between the federal and the state areas. You've got federal rules of evidence and each state has its own rules of evidence. A lot of them overlap. A lot of them are the same, but but there are differences. And uh, so the, the reason I mentioned that is you are, I've, I've seen some affirmatives come out of camps that try to modify the federal rules of evidence and, and do so in a way to change how, for example, forensic science is introduced. And, and that's driven in part by that 2009 report, because one of the concerns it raised is, is how forensic science get, gets used in the courtroom. Uh, so all of that's, a, that's a very long buildup to say that, that the forensic science portion of this topic, you can reform how forensic science is done. So I'm in the lab, what am I doing? You can also reform how forensic science is used in the courtroom. Um, and it, you know, there, there are arguments maybe that, that how it's used in the courtroom isn't, isn't topical, but it, I think that's a very close debate. And so I think you're going to see affirmatives uh, go after that as well. So understanding the courtroom process, uh, again, is, is an important one. So I mentioned, you know, reaching out to, to judges to understand sentencing. They would also be a, a great benefit in understanding the courtroom procedure and, and the actual trial process uh, that, that's used. Last part about forensic science that I think is worth talking about, uh, because you're, again, based on that 2009 report, I think you're going to see people talk about it. And that's how crime laboratories are structured. Most crime laboratories where forensic science is done are controlled by law enforcement. And if you think about that, that certainly raises the potential of a bias, right? Law enforcement says, forensic scientist, I need you to do this thing. Forensic science does that thing presuming in the back of their mind it's for law enforcement. When in reality, what we hope crime laboratories are doing are are sort of objective science that tells us one way or the other, is this the right person? Is this substance actually uh, what it is? And so there's, there's a fair amount of literature out there about why the connection between law enforcement, prosecution uh, offices, and crime laboratories uh, is bad. Uh, a case in point would be Houston. In Houston, the, the crime lab became so essentially corrupt because of its ties to law enforcement that they shut it down and rebuilt it from the ground up where it was totally independent. Uh, and it, it has worked. It's been a, a success story there. I'm, I'm sure there are places where it hasn't worked. And I'm also sure there are places where law enforcement control is kind of a non-issue. Uh, but that's certainly something to understand uh, is the administration of crime laboratories and, it, and its effect on forensic science. So let's talk a little bit about AF arguments and NAG arguments. Uh, the, the affirmative arguments here, I think, are a little bit more limited even though it's a very broad area of the topic, they're a little bit more limited uh, than, say, policing or sentencing. I, I think the vast majority of the affirmative arguments are going to be, be excuse me, be about wrongful convictions. And that's the idea that bad forensic science led to the conviction of someone who didn't commit the crime. Uh, there's, there's certainly uh, a lot of examples of that. And, and so I think you're going to, that will be the main thrust of that. Now, why wrongful convictions are bad there's a lot of different reasons. So that, that will provide some diversity for folks. But I think that's, that's going to be the main thrust uh, of, of these affirmatives is bad science leads to bad convictions. Negative arguments here, this, you know, I mentioned being smart uh, when you're affirmative. The negative arguments here are, are somewhat limited. 
States and federalism, states counterplan, excuse me, and federalism is, is a good argument uh, because, again, the federal forensic science uh, versus state forensic sciences is a clear distinction. The federal government through the FBI, that's where most of its forensic science is handled. Uh, but at the state level, forensic science is, is state or local crime laboratories. You know, for example, Wyoming has the Wyoming State Crime Laboratory in Cheyenne, and it, it does all the forensic science work around the state, and it's controlled and funded by the state. Um, it, they, I think they do get grants from the federal government, um, but it's a state-controlled state, state controlled issue. Um, so that delineation will, will breed federalism and states' counterplan arguments based on, you know, is reforming the FBI sufficient or can the federal government force reforms uh, at at the state level. So some of that, the, the mechanisms that the affirmatives will use will definitely be in play for, for forensic science and, and have implications uh, for what, for what the negative does. Um, and then, you know, this is, this I think is the one of the few areas where court-based arguments uh, for the negative are also going to be in play. You know, how changing forensic science in the courtroom affects the court process. I think those arguments are going to be out there, um, and, and maybe maybe the you know one of the ideas behind forensic science is you want to make it better and make it more accessible. And, and some of the downside of that is that means more trials and and straining court resources. So you could I think see some of those arguments from the negative. Um, but in, interesting part of the topic, and and I think one that if you dig in and understand the science uh, could be a lot of fun. So the AF, the most likely run AF plan is going to involve bad science means bad convictions. So what what would the proposal be to change the process or to eliminate the use of you not not allow the use of some of that forensic science in the courtroom or what what would what kind of plans have you seen that would maybe explore that? Yeah, how, so certainly certainly uh, changing how it's used in the courtroom. There are some camps that put out affirmatives about that. One, uh, Wyoming's camp, uh, for example, put out an affirmative that would add a new rule of evidence that uh, would prohibit certain forensic science or, or, um, or what you may also see is the rather than prohibit forensic science, change the, uh, the requirements for its admission in evidence. So this kind of goes back to the distinction between factual witnesses and expert witnesses. Uh, expert witnesses have to, and their testimony has to satisfy certain legal requirements to, to come in. Like I can't pretend to be an expert in something and, and offer some random thoughts. I, I actually have to be qualified as an expert and the opinions that I'm offering have to be based on sound, defensible, peer-reviewed science. Um, and, and so I th- there are affirmatives out there that try and heighten those standards to make sure that if I'm a forensic science scientist coming in to talk about something, I really have to have uh, a very solid foundation from a scientific standpoint uh, before I can even talk uh, and, and the jury hear that. So I think you're going to see those affirmatives. Um, I, I think you're also going to see affirmatives about one of the big things I've seen in literature is just the lack of uniform standards for what good science is. You know, if you, if you think about say the medical profession, um, there are, there are very specific standards for what, you know, if you're a, um, a brain surgeon, 
there are, there are very specific medical standards you need to meet to be doing good brain surgeon work, uh, for example. But in the area of forensic science, there, there really aren't any um, standards. And, and so what that breeds is everybody kind of does their own thing and they do it their own way. And, and maybe one methodology is good and another methodology is really bad. Um, so the, the ironic part of this is, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you talk to like the science teachers uh, at high school, like you talk to a chemistry teacher, they're going to tell you, well, if you're going to do this experiment, here are the scientific protocols you have to follow to, to conduct a good experiment. But forensic scientists don't have that. They, they, there's not anything that sets that out. So I think he, I think affirmatives that say we're going to set standards uh, for federal 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 forensic science or just forensic science in general uh, will be one. Uh, the the other thing I, I think you're going to see is just is because this part of the topic has reports by the federal government that says, hey, we should implement these particular policy proposals. I think you might see people just do one of those. Um, you know, the 2009 report, I think, had 12 uh, specific proposals, and there have been follow-up reports that have had others. But but there's actually, I mean, unlike most topics where you kind of have to take some, some literature and, and build an, a plan around that, you actually have people saying, this is the plan that you should do. I do. I do think it's like intriguing that uh, friends like you pointed out the forensic science like bleeds into that area in between law enforcement investigation and then uh, the penalty component of the criminal justice system. I mean, it does. It feels like kind of an exciting place to explore. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the you know policing and and sentencing are really kind of isolated. They they do one thing and, and one thing only. Uh, but forensic science, it gets you into the investigation and it, and it gets you into the courtroom, which um, w- one thing I, di- I didn't mention, but maybe it's a good place here. I think I think this topic is really small. I, 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 I sort of started out thinking, oh, this is going to be a broad topic. Mm-hmm. But I, I really think I'd be surprised if you see more than like 10 affirmatives on this topic, mm-hmm. at least common. You're going to see the random ones here and there. but. I think you're going to have 10 mainstream affirmatives. That's interesting. I know. I think, I think even you and I talked about it probably toward the end of last year, how we thought that it was going to be kind of a, or, well, I mean, it was a very open topic, a lot of Mm -hmm. possibilities, but I can see why you, you would say that. I mean, there's, there's not as much stuff there as it seems like at first. (laughs) I don't know. It's hard to explain. Yeah, no. And, and the the real hams, I think the real hamstring that shrinks the topic is that it, it's one of those where the feds do one thing and the states do one thing and never the two really should meet. Mm-hmm. And so you're certainly going to have teams that say, you know what, screw it. We're, <laughs> we're going to have the federal government do something for, to the states and, and they're just going to get into a topicality federalism debate every round. Um, but, I, but most of the truly topical affirmatives are going to be limited to the federal level. And, and, I, and as a result, I, I just think it's going to be small. Uh, one tip for those of you who are going to go research this, um, you want to try and find law review articles. Um, shockingly, there's not a lot of news reporting on forensic science, but there's a lot of uh, lawyers and, and law school professors who write in law review articles, which um, you, you can um, 
The, the source you want to go to there is called Hein Online, H-E-I-N Online. It's a database of law review articles, most of which you can access for free. And that's, that's really the, the best fodder I found for that stuff. Cool. Well, I've got you talking about like resources. Do you have any other uh, go-to places to kind of start digging for in any of these three categories, like for stuff aside from the normal, the usual suspects? Yeah. I, you know, I, this is, this is a topic where I think think tanks are your friend, um, particularly for policing. So uh, Cato, uh, the Cato Institute, Heritage Foundation, the Brookings Institute, um, those are going to be great places to start. Uh, you know, the, the easiest way to get into think tank research, because a lot of it doesn't pop up on Google for some reason, um, is to just Google think tanks. And there's a couple of websites that will give you a list with hyperlinks of, of think tanks. And you will find you've got some very general ones like Cato, Brookings, Heritage, um, that that you're going to find policing stuff. But then there's some very specific think tanks that are devoted entirely uh, to this. The, the other resource I think will be real helpful is the Innocence Project. They, uh, they, they, do, they do a lot of work about wrongful convictions, but that, that inevitably leads to research about forensic science or um, sentencing, uh, things like that. So those, those are all going to be great resources. Yeah, we've been doing a little bit with that in my English three class. We're reading Just Mercy right now too, so we're oh, talking okay. about the court process. Yeah, you know, one process. Uh, this is a, li- a little bit off topic, but I mean, this is this is one of the few topics where people probably have some kind of experience related to the criminal justice system. They either know someone who went through it, um, they know someone who's involved in it. Um, so I. For me, I always like those topics for, so kids can kind of connect to them and then they get a little bit more invested where you get like we mentioned the domestic surveillance topic. I remember everybody, at least for my team, hated that topic because like, what is this? We don't we don't care about this. We don't deal with this. Yeah, I definitely have. Um, I mean, I, I think that this topic is what drew at least one of the kids that really wants to do policy into policy because they really want to talk about this topic or, uh, you know, are interested in getting involved in the legal system um, mm-hmm. for a career. And so this topic especially is drawing them to policy, which now they're finding that policy in and of itself is <laughs> like <laughs> kind of what the career is. You know what I mean? It's sort of yeah. directly related to what people in um, <laughs> involved in the criminal justice system for, for a job do. So, (laughs) well, that's, that's what I tell people. I just grew up to become a professional policy debater. That's all, (laughs) all being a lawyer really is. Well, you're a really good policy debate coach. (laughs) (laughs) I I try. I'm definitely learning a lot. So I appreciate, um, is there anything else that you wanted to add? It looks like you've kind of like walked through the three different parts. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I guess one thing um, I, I didn't mention, um, but is is really important, and that that is, and I, it probably is just too much to to do on something like this. But go and figure out what the criminal justice system is, how it works, what it involves, who's involved with it, 
you know, if you have if you have that understanding, a lot of the stuff that you're going to read and research is going to make a lot more sense. You know, and I think anytime you're setting up and learning about a topic, you got to understand kind of the infrastructure that goes with the topic. So like last year on arm sales, I made my students, I'm like, look, you need to go read the state department website about how foreign military sales and direct commercial sales work. If you don't understand that, I don't care if you understand how to argue this nuclear war impact, you're just, you're not going to win many debates. So I think this year you got to go read up on the criminal justice system or, or, you know, if you can reach out to folks who can help educate you about that, but it's a a critical part of this topic. Well, I hope that you learned as much as I did from this discussion with Jeff. uh, And I hope that you got some good food for thought from Jeff's topic analysis Thank you so much to Jeff Pope for coming by the One Clap podcast and generously offering his time and ideas. If you have an idea or request for Rock On Debate, shoot me an email at lylewiley at gmail.com or reach out on the website, oneclapspeechanddebate.com or social media. All these are linked in the show notes. Check out our Patreon page also linked in the show notes if you'd like to support One Clap Speech and Debate and partner with me on this journey. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the One Clap podcast. Watch for new episodes of One Clap, Rock On Debate, Coach Connection, and Speech Love. Thank you so much for listening. Good luck to all the debaters out there competing. And debaters, don't stop rocking. One Clap podcast.